Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, not your typical Easter text. And I know some of you in the room are thinking, well, where's he going with this? This is the time to remember the empty tomb, not to try to interpret the beast that comes out of the sea shaped like a leopard or something like that. But here's what I want to point you to. The book of Revelation was written to show us the implications of the resurrection. The book of Revelation was written to encourage us in our faith to help us remember that this truth that we sing about, that yes, is 2,000 years ago that this historical event of the resurrection happened, that yes, indeed, it matters. That's why this vision was given to John. And so this passage will help us see this morning the full implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it may be exactly what we need Easter 2019, and I'll explain that as we go through it. Uh, The flow of the message this morning is going to follow a very simple outline. It's going to be three statements that all begin with, he is. He is. And the first one you already know. Yes, (laughs) he is risen. And everybody said, he is risen indeed. You want to come up here and teach the rest of the message for me? (laughs) He is risen. Now, Did you know that in the first century AD, those three words, he is risen, would have you killed? Those three words would have you killed. In fact, what we know about the lives of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus and the other men and women that followed Jesus and saw him alive after he was killed, all of them were either tortured or killed because they would not let go of the fact that they believed he is risen. Those three words would get you killed. Now, why did they keep saying them? Like, despite the torture, despite being put to death, despite all the tribulation that they had, why didn't they just stop and say, well, maybe he isn't risen? Because they saw him with their own eyes. Because they touched him. They hugged him. They ate with him. They saw the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. They knew it to be true, and they would not stop proclaiming what they had seen and heard. He is risen. Those three words are not just a religious expression. It's not just something that we come here today 2,000 years later and say, oh, isn't it fun to be a Christian? And you know, thousands of people all over this area and this world are right now saying those same words. They're not just a religious expression. They're a statement of what we believe to be historically true that changes everything. The entire universe pivots around the truth of those three words. He is risen. Now, the disciple of all the 12 that lived the longest was John. Now, John was one that some would say, in terms of friendship and just personal close relationship, was maybe the closest disciple. He describes himself kind of in hushed tones as the disciple whom Jesus loved the one that we see seated or or, or reclining right beside Jesus in that last supper. This disciple was tortured, was persecuted, ultimately exiled, but as far as we can tell, he died of natural causes. He suffered immensely for Jesus, but as far as we can tell, he died of natural causes as an old man. He wrote the book of Revelation when he was exiled, abandoned on a volcanic island 
called Patmos. It's still around today. It's, it's uh, southwest off the coast of modern-day Turkey. You can still go there and see it. In fact, if you go to Patmos someday, you can actually go inside the cave that tradition holds. John wrote the book of Revelation. And so you can imagine John, at the end of his life, all of his friends had died already. All the other disciples had been executed, had been killed. He's at the end of his life. He's in this damp, dark cave, and he had to have been thinking to himself, what has the resurrection of Jesus accomplished? Because in the 60 years since Jesus had, had risen from the dead to the time that John was writing the book of Revelation, nothing good had happened. I mean, honestly, the church had been scattered out of Jerusalem because Stephen was killed and then others were killed shortly thereafter. Emperor Nero had taken control and had just done unspeakably terrible things to Christians. He, he would literally douse them in oil and set them afire as human torches to light up his parties. Later on, Emperor Domitian would feed them to the, the lions and the bears in the gladiatorial races. Torture anyone who would claim these words, he is risen. Rome had swept in in AD 70 and leveled Jerusalem. The temple was gone. The city was gone. Even the Jewish people were having to be in hiding. And there John was as an old man around AD 90, AD 95, abandoned, alone, left to die on a deserted island of Patmos. He had to have been thinking in his darker moments, what has the resurrection of Jesus accomplished? Now, this is where John's life really helps us because in some small way, I think we can identify with him. What has the resurrection of Jesus really accomplished? Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're singing about a future hope, but how does that impact me today? This is not the first time this morning that I've had this thought. If you look around the world, you look around our country, you look around, you know, like every, everything just seems to be, like the, the pace of disintegration seems to be quickening, doesn't it? It used to be in previous generations that we would read about that there was this optimism that kind of shined through. That, yeah, you know, things are on their way up. Things are getting better. In fact, I remember growing up, it was technology that was going to save us. And even today, if you watch TV commercials, if you pay attention to media, there's this sense that our technology, our ability as human beings to be able to create technology that will make our lives better is going to make this world a better place. Isn't it ironic that now it's our very technology that so many of us are afraid of, so many of us are worn out by, so many of us feel our lives sort of being fragmented in different places because of the very technology that we thought was going to save us. Here we are 2,000 years after the resurrection, still living in a world that's falling apart. Sometimes now it feels more than ever it's falling apart. Tomorrow morning, you'll wake up and, and move past the cheerfulness of Easter to face the challenges of life on a broken planet with a broken body that is literally disintegrating the longer you live. We live in a place where broken people hurt one another. Broken nations don't get along. Broken institutions bring injustice rather than justice. And literally, broken cells in our bodies create pain and deterioration. This morning, just like John in the cave, we need to know not only he is risen, but how that fact secures our hope. If he is risen, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? What are the implications for the world? Don't worry, we have two more he is statements to go. 
In that cave on Patmos, John received a vision from God in a moment of darkness and in a place of darkness and dampness and desperation. John saw a vision. That vision placed him in the throne room of the creator himself, standing before God. And we'll pick up the text, chapter five, verse one. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Three times in these first four verses, John mentions the book. What is this book that's in the right hand of God that's, that's causing so much drama in the throne room. It was almost certainly not a book as you and I would think of it today with binding and pages. It would have been a scroll. Now, what's interesting about this scroll was it says it was written on, on the front and the back. It was entirely filled up. That was unusual because back in that day, scrolls were made of parchment and there was a smooth side of the parchment that you could write on and there was a rough side on the back that was very difficult to write on. So scrolls weren't written on both sides. The fact that it was written on both sides is a symbol that it was completed. Like there's something that's completely done. There's nothing else to be added to this particular book to this particular scroll. Notice that it's sealed, not just with one seal, but seven seals. Seven is the number of perfection. And you gotta remember, in apocalyptic literature, which is what the revelation is, there's all kinds of metaphor. There's all kinds of symbolic things and images that are going on. The seven seals represents fullness, represents completion. Now, a seal was a little bit like a lock, in the first century. You put a seal on something, you couldn't open it. You had to be the right person, the right time with the right credentials to open that. This one had seven seals. A, a scroll written front and back, completely filled with seven, the number of completeness, seals that would not let the scroll be opened. And a proclamation goes out from the strong angel. Who's worthy to open the scroll? Interesting, it says, they looked in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Well, I, I know what, what heaven is and I know what earth is, but what's under the earth? You know, maybe that's just an expression that's like, you know, they, 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 they turned everything inside out. It's a little more than that. And that day under the earth was an expression of this is where the souls of people lived that were dead awaiting resurrection. Under the earth. In other words, every person, not just alive at the time, every person who ever lived and every place in the entire universe was searched to find one worthy to open the scroll and no one was found. I think one of the most interesting parts of this whole passage we're reading today is John's emotion. Like, I understand him being a little disappointed or maybe surprised that no one could open the scroll, uh, but it's deeper than that. He weeps. And by the way, this is not just a little whimpering. 
You know, the, the, our English version says, I began to weep greatly. That's a translation. Weep greatly is a translation of the Greek word kleo. Kleo means a wailing lament. Kleo is the same word that was used of Peter when he denied Jesus the third time and he heard the rooster crow and he remembered Jesus saying, you were gonna deny me. And he said, no, I won't. And Jesus said, yes, you will. And then here he was denying him. It's a broken heart. It's the deepest cry that you can cry in the Greek language. In, in our modern vernacular, we might say kleo means ugly cry. When was the last time you had an ugly cry? John's response makes you wonder what in the world was in this scroll that would have him falling apart because no one is able to open it. And here's the answer to that question. When you read the whole book of Revelation from chapter one to chapter 22, what you realize this scroll really is a big deal because this scroll contains God's plans to bring human history to its just and complete fulfillment, its beautiful finish. Like this is the unveiling of the end of the story. The scroll contains God's plans to make all things new, to make everything that's wrong in the world right for all eternity. So John is weeping. Why is he weeping that nobody can open it? Because to open the scroll is to bring into reality God's plans for the wholeness and completeness of creation. For someone to open the scroll, think about it this way. How does God accomplish things on the earth? Oftentimes through speaking. Genesis 1, he created the heavens and the earth through words. Let there be, let there be. So when that scroll is opened, it means this broken universe is gonna come back into wholeness and the new creation will be consummated. That's the power of this scroll and no one could open it. And John is weeping because he's thinking, what, what, what about everything promised? Is this it? I'm in a cave. My friends are dead. The resurrection has not seemingly accomplished much of anything on this side. Is this how it ends? Who can open the scroll? Who can make things right? Who can bring about wholeness? W.A. Criswell was a well-known Baptist preacher. He wrote this about John's tears. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. They are the tears of Adam and Eve, driven out of the Garden of Eden as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son, Abel. They are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they look on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. In other words, John's tears are our tears. They're the tears of questions unanswered. The tears of hope deferred. The tears of loneliness. The tears of loss. The tears of struggle, of looking up in the heavens and saying, God, where are you? The tears of doubt. The tears of anxiety. The tears that flow when life is just too painful, the tears that come when our hope 
for the future is clouded by weariness, by grief. And like John, in these moments, we feel the weight of the question, who will open the scroll? Who's able to reconcile all this mess? Who's able to bring about the final and full redemption? That was promised. Because even though John knew the resurrection was a historical reality and fact, this world has a way of eroding hope that what the resurrection secures for our future is really going to happen. It is because of all of this that we need our next he is statement. He is risen, but what else? What does that mean? We find it in our next three verses. Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. There's an awful lot of imagery packed into three verses. Let me walk you through it briefly. The Lion of Judah, a reference to Genesis 49, which predicted a powerful messianic ruler from the tribe of Judah. The Root of David, a reference to Isaiah 11, which prophesied that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. The Lamb standing as if slain, a reference to John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The seven horns, the seven eyes, the seven spirits are symbolic references to the deity of Jesus. We already mentioned the number seven represents wholeness. It's the number of perfection or completeness. John's proclaiming that Jesus is fully God, fully man, yes, and fully God. That means he's omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere. He fills the earth. He fills the universe. All of these are metaphors and descriptions of one man, God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we find our second he is statement. Not only is he risen, now we see he is able He's able to what? He's able to open the scroll. He's able to break the seals. What does that mean? It means he's able to bring into reality the full completion of everything God promised. It means he's able to wipe every tear from our eyes. He is able to restore every cell in our bodies. He is able to bring to wholeness all the fragmentation and the brokenness on our creation. He is able to bring dead things back to life. He is able to make everything brand new. I want you to see the connection between the first two of our he is statements. He is risen. He is able. There's a little connecting phrase in there in verse five. Look at verse five again. It's the two words, so as. It says, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There's the connection between these two ideas. Now, of everyone on heaven on earth and under the earth, why is it Jesus who's able to open the book? Because he has overcome. 
That's what verse five tells us. He has overcome. Now, what has he overcome? The three great enemies. These are the three great enemies of God, the three great enemies of you and me, the three great enemies of life itself, in a sense. Satan, sin, and death. Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness. He overcame sin on the cross. And he overcame death in the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus was the pivotal event in human history that guaranteed that the final enemy, death, would be destroyed, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. The empty tomb swallowed death whole and Jesus walked out the victor. He has overcome. So here's the connection. He has risen, so he is able, you see. He is able to do everything he promised. He is able to restore every broken thing. And he is able to fill every deep desire in our heart. If John the apostle, who walked with Jesus for three years, witnessed his miracles, watched him be crucified and buried, and then saw him after the resurrection, touched him, spoke with him, If John needed to be reminded that the resurrection guarantees completion, we do as well. And so God gives it to us. He gives us this text where he peeled back the curtain of heaven. And through this passage this morning, even, the Spirit re-speaking it to us. The Spirit who authored it now giving it life because the word of God is alive. It is living and active. Even for us this morning, this text gives us the same encouragement that it gave to John. So when circumstances of life conspire to challenge our confidence that God is in control and drain our hope that God is using all things to bring us to the day when all will be made right. Revelation 5 gives us a picture of what is true. God in control on the throne, Jesus worthy to open the scroll, and as surely as he rose from the grave, he will bring to completion God's purposes and plans. He is risen, so he is able. There is one more he is statement that we need to see. Let's look at verses eight to 10. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Isn't that beautiful, by the way? And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you are slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. What's the response of everyone and everything when they come into the presence of the one who is risen and therefore able? The response is worship. It's worship. It can be the only true response when you encounter the risen Jesus. Now, our English word worship comes from the root worth. 
And so to worship means to ascribe or name the worth of something, the value of something. And so who else, think about it this way, who else or what else in all creation is as worthy of worship as the one who overcame death in order to open the scroll and bring about the completion and fullness of everything God promised. So our third he is statement is this. He is worthy. Worthy of worship. Worthy of allegiance. Worthy of all that we have. Even worthy of our very lives. He is worthy. He is risen, so he is able. Therefore, he is worthy. And these verses that we read contain the good news. They contain the gospel, that people from every tongue, did you see that part? Every tongue, every tribe, every nation are going to come to believe. And even now, and even have for 2,000 years and will continue, will come to believe that Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that we could not, that Jesus died the death that our sins deserved and that he was buried. And on the third day that we remember today, historical reality, he was risen as God validated that Jesus' life and death satisfied God's righteous judgment of sin. And these verses tell us that all of those who believe are placed in this special kingdom the kingdom of God, and, and we're going to be priests who will reign with God over new creation. And I don't know how exciting that sounds to you. I mean, most of us are like, who wants to be a priest? Let me tell you what a priest was. A priest was someone who would intercede before God. Now, our calling is going to be rule over the whole creation. That was the original calling of mankind in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're gonna come back into the fulfillment of that. We're gonna be ruling. We're gonna be co-heirs with Christ over new creation. I don't know what that'll look like, but it's cool. I mean, it's exciting. It's glorious. We have confidence in a glorious future because he is risen. So he is able. Therefore, he is worthy. He is worthy. 